In a heated conversation with the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus defended his credentials as the begotten Son of God, and he pointedly accused them by saying that if Abraham were their father, as they claimed, then they would have allowed Abraham's example, or they would have followed, I should say, Abraham's example and believed the word of God. And if they were thus the children of God, they would have embraced the Son of God, who came in demonstration of God's power. But they refused to accept even the most obvious of evidences. They rejected the truth of their own scriptures. And Jesus points out that since their religion was based upon falsehood and upon a lie, that their father was not the God of truth, but rather the God uh, and father of every lie and all liars, Satan himself. These are rather scathing words when Jesus says, You are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not of the truth because there is no truth in him. For he is a liar and he is the father of it. And it's not so difficult to look someone in the eye and say, I believe you're wrong about that or I believe maybe you're a little bit off base or you're misguided. Jesus looked at these hypocrites and he said, You're of the devil and the devil is a liar. And I know that you're the children of the devil because you're following and you're believing a lie. A tough pill to swallow, but the truth nonetheless. And the fact of the matter is, whether or not we really have the uh, backbone or the confidence to stand and declare it so, the fact is when you reject or anybody rejects the truth, there is nothing else to believe but a lie. If I don't believe what is right, then obviously I believe what is wrong because everybody believes something. And there are only two choices where that is concerned. When you, for whatever reason, reject the truth of God, you have given the devil an open invitation to deceive you through sin. Paul said that this is what happened in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10, when he spoke of some by saying they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness because they did not desire to know and obey the truth. God allowed them to believe a lie and to see the end and damning consequence of their sin. You know, it really boils down to one thing tonight, and that is that every person stands at a crossroads and that we only have two choices in life. We can either open our heart and our mind to what God says about any and every matter, or we can choose to believe the lies of the wicked one. Now, it's no surprise that most people have chosen to reject the truth tonight concerning any number of subjects, morality, salvation, the church, the necessity of Christian living, and on and on we might go. And as the result, the majority of people about us believe the many lies that Satan has pawned off on a world that seems eager to be deceived. Let me explain how this works. God says through Moses, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. That's a simple declarative statement that God in the beginning of time created all that is. He created the heavens and the earth. And tonight I either have the faith to accept that statement or I, uh, I am an infidel. I either believe what the Bible says there or I reject the truth of the scripture. Well, the world finds that hard to accept, and so some infidel scientists can come along with a preposterous theory such as that man originated from a non-sex 
a primitive life cell that spontaneously evolved and over the course of millions and millions of years that cell finally developed and it evolved to the point that it became a creature with legs and with arms and sprouted hair and started climbing trees and eating bananas and that's your great uncle Harry and uh, people believe that and teachers can stand up in a classroom and they can teach that and people will believe that. They accept that simply because they have said no in their mind to the Bible truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now God had a simple principle when he created all living things and he made them of two genders. He made male and he made female and one need only look at the course of nature to understand that this is God's system and God's plan for the propagation of the human race and for that kind of companionship. But the world says it is not that way. They reject that. And so some sociologists can come along and tell us that marriage can be between two men or two women or that two men or two women can constitute a functional and loving home just as much as any traditional home with a traditional mother and father. And we've reached the point today that the world upholds homosexuality and obviously unnatural lifestyle as a glorified lifestyle instead of being what the Bible calls it and that is an abomination against God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus also said, if you continue in my word then are ye my disciples indeed but the world says that that's too dogmatic, that's too narrow. They reject that kind of bigoted theology and so you end up with so many denominations and various religions and factions and sects in the world that people today don't even know whether there is such a thing as absolute truth or truth versus error. It's all just a feeling. It's all just an experience. It all, it's all just what you choose to believe or what road you choose to go down in life. And there really is no standard that dictates the difference between right and wrong. And so again, I say that if you reject the premise of God's word, if you reject the truth, all there is to believe is a lie. And if you refuse to listen to God, the only one left to listen to is the devil. And the Bible says he is the father of lies. I believe tonight that there are at least seven lies that Satan attempts to whisper into any eager and listening ear. And he has certainly deceived our world with his moral and religious fabrications. And I think we can take the deceptions of the devil and we can really boil them down, categorize them into seven basic falsehoods that he has passed off on the world tonight. And I want to discuss them with you for a few minutes. I want to begin by saying that Satan, number one, wants you to believe that there are many ways to get to God. If there is a God, there are many ways to approach him to please him, to serve him, and to finally inherit eternity with him. Despite the fact that Jesus in John 14 and 6 very dogmatically said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said in words that could not be any plainer in John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door, and by me if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. Jesus claimed in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. And Paul in Colossians 3 and verse 17 said, whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, it must all be done in the name of or by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's convenient when one finds God's way too restrictive or too narrow or unpleasing 
to think that some other way will do just as well. And as a result of that kind of uh, rationale, man has fooled around over the course of hundreds of years, and he has built for himself a maze of denominations and religious factions and told the world that one of them is just as good as another until today we have reached the point that you can't hardly distinguish any of the religions in the world. In fact, this was really driven home in my mind here just a few years ago, immediately after the horrible tragedies of 9-11. You may remember that there were a number of reactions amongst our nation, really around the world, after that horrible day. And one of them, for a very brief amount of time, it seemed as though there was going to be a little bit of a religious awakening and a religious revival, uh, a, a revival of spiritual thinking on the part of people. I know one thing that it produced was a rallying cry for unity for ecumenical unity, for religions to come together and to find common ground instead of focusing upon their differences and being alienated. And they explain that the reason that we were living in the climate that we are in the world is because people of religions really can't get along and so religion is the culprit of the problem. Well, in our local paper down home one day, I was shocked when a newspaper article came out that said that one of the largest and mainstream denominations in town was going to host a forum or a seminar that coming weekend. And uh, again, this is not some far left organization. This is not some fringe or radical group. This is a large, mainstream, respected denomination, not only in that community, but throughout the country. And this group was going to hold a forum inviting preachers of various religions to come together and not only were they going to invite the quote-unquote pastor of another denomination in town but they were as well going to invite one of the local Jewish rabbis and a Muslim cleric to this meeting and these men were all going to be given an opportunity to get up and explain their beliefs and talk about their beliefs and they would take questions and so forth and this preacher with this denomination was quoted as saying that it is time that we began focusing on the areas in which we agree instead of focusing upon the areas in which we disagree because, he said, we really have more in common than we have that what divides us. Now, I'm going to tell you that's where we are today. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in a society today where no one can claim that they have the truth to the exclusion of other people. And I'm going to dogmatically and unashamedly say tonight that I have nothing religiously in common. I have no basis, no grounds for any type of fellowship or unity, not even the beginning point of such, with anybody who believes that Jesus Christ is anything but what he claims to be, and that is the only begotten Son of God. God in the form of man who came down and vicariously died for the sins of man and he is the only way to get to heaven. And I unashamedly say tonight that I don't believe there'll be a person, man, woman, boy or girl of the age of accountability that will walk through the gates of heaven who has not placed their obedient faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to get to heaven. Man's goodness will not get you there. Who you are will not get you there. The fact that you live in a certain country will not get you there. The fact that your parents are religious will not get you there? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And I know that that's too narrow and that's too dogmatic for people in this world today, but I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and will always be the only way to get to heaven. But you know, we shouldn't really be surprised that that's the mentality of millions of people in this country and around the world, because after all, preachers have hammered home for generations now into people's minds. It really doesn't matter what you believe. It's all about a good 
feely. It's all about that you just try to get along with other people. It's all about the warm, fuzzy feeling you have about other people because really people are sincere and they're well-intentioned. And what we believe and what we practice, why? That's just mechanics and that's irrelevant and that's unimportant. Why not take the next step and say that people that reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God, they just have a different understanding than we do. They just come from a different background than we do. And we need to tolerate and we need to coexist and we need to extend the right hand of fellowship to all of these religious people around the world. Don't believe it for a minute because tonight it is a lie of the devil that there are many ways to get to God. Getting to heaven is not like looking at a road map of the United States and choosing the most scenic route to get somewhere. But Jesus said, straight and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it, Matthew 7 and 14. The Bible declares there is one body, and Paul said that Christ is the Savior of that body, Ephesians 5 and 23, and it boils down to this tonight. You're either in that body or you're not. You're either in the church that Jesus built or you're not. And your salvation depends tonight upon whether or not you are in it. One is not as good as another. One belief is not as valid as another. One church is not as right as another. Satan may want you to believe that, but Jesus says, Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Matthew 15 and verse 13. Number two, though, Satan wants you to believe that the Word of God is not absolutely true. Now, it's all right to believe that the Bible has good points. It's all right to believe that the Bible has an overall good moral message and an encouraging moral by which to guide your life. But it's going a little far to say that the Word of God is just that. That it is the Word of God, inspired of God, and authority in all matters of faith and practice. And you know that's been the tactic of Satan since the beginning. We know the story. When God created the original pair and placed them in the paradisial garden, it wasn't very long after God had given them one law to keep, one prohibition. God said, there's a tree in the midst of the garden that you are not to partake of. You can eat of every other tree of the garden. But God said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, thou shalt not eat of it. And God said, if you do eat of it, you will die. There was nothing convoluted. There was nothing hard to understand about that. If you could see through a ladder, you could see what God was saying. There is one tree. Do not eat it. Leave it alone or you will die. That is sin. It is transgression of my law. That was God's unction unto Adam and thus unto Eve. But Satan slithered into the garden and he approached Eve with a half insinuating uh, a remark. He said, Hath God said that ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Satan was not seeking information. Satan knew just as well as Eve did what God had said. He knew that that tree was off limits and forbidden so far as they were concerned. And so he wasn't sincerely trying to find out what God had said. We know better than that. But rather Satan was trying to plant the seed of doubt in the mind of Eve. He was trying to get Eve to think, well, what did God really say? What did God really mean by what he said anyway? Maybe it's not just exactly like I thought it was. Maybe I've overlooked something here. Maybe I read too much into what God was saying. You know, sometimes it's easy to allow a seed of doubt to get planted in our mind, and if it stays there, it grows. And it grows into something big over time. Maybe you have started out for church some Sunday morning, and gotten in the car with your wife, and got just a few blocks down the street, and she begins to mumble and think to herself, you know, I'm not sure I turned the oven off. As she had started lunch a little early, she said, I'm not sure I turned that oven off. 
And then she thinks, well, maybe I did. She gets a few more blocks down the street. She says, no, you know, I think I left that oven on. Well, maybe not. And then you get a little closer. She says, boy, I, I know I didn't turn. I, I just can't. I know I didn't turn that oven on. And by the time you pull, uh, and by the time you pull into the parking lot of the church building, she is convinced that the house has burned to a heap of ash. And you've got to turn around and race back to the house all to find out that she did turn the oven off. But she allowed that thought to cross her mind. And because that seed of doubt was placed there, that seed of doubt grew until she had convinced herself that that was the case. Well, that's really what happens to Eve here, I think. Satan says, hath God said that you should not eat of every tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And she starts thinking, well, what did God say? And then she overreacts a little bit. She says, yes, God said we should not eat of this tree, neither should we touch it, lest we die. Well, now, unless something wasn't recorded in the scripture that God said, the Bible doesn't say anything about God saying not to touch it. God said not to eat of it. She's overreacting. She's questioning. The wheels are turning in her mind. What did God really say? She's not exactly sure of herself. And Satan sees the opening. He sees the vulnerability. And he seizes upon it. And he denies what God said. He said, not only will you not die, your eyes will be opened to, and you'll be able to see like God's. And he painted the tree as being perfectly harmless. Now, you know, error is usually mixed with truth. It was true that the tree was not physically fatal. It was true that the fruit on that tree was just as edible as the tree next to it. It was not poisonous. But it was, and it was true that eating its fruit would do what Satan said it would do. It would bring about the knowledge of good and evil. It was wrong, though, to even suggest that eating the fruit would not really do what God said it would do, and that is bring about their separation from God and cause death. Claiming to believe the Bible is not in and of itself believing the Bible. And believing some things that are contained in the Bible is not parallel to accepting the word of God by faith or letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Now few people among those who profess religion deny the entirety of the Bible. Most people accept some teaching or some statement, some premise of the Word of God. Millions of people, and I do mean millions of people who go to church every Sunday, who profess religion, they deny or they ignore some portion of the Scripture. And they justify that in any number of ways that we may talk about later on in this meeting. They deny the inspiration of the Bible. They say that the Bible was just generally revealed by God, but not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, it's not word by word and line by line literally the Word of God. They deny the relevancy, the authority, the sufficiency, the, uh, the uh, application in modern times of the Word of God. And Satan convinces people to believe that till the Bible just merely becomes somewhat of a good book, but a book that is racked with error, a book that is insufficient, a book that is unable to guide man and help man to steer through the complicated course of life in our modern day. Satan has convinced people that doctrine is a matter of personal preference or belief. But Jesus said, thy word is truth, John 17 and 17. Satan says there is no such thing as a moral absolute, that truth is relative. David said, however, the word of the Lord is right, Psalm 33 and 4. Satan says God really didn't mean what he said. You can't take God literally. Paul says, let God be true, but every man a liar, Romans 3 and verse 4. David said in Psalm 119 and 160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Satan wants you to believe tonight the word of God is not true. I ask you, if the word of God is not true, what is? Number three, 
Satan wants you to believe God will make an exception in my case. And what a deception this really is. God will make an exception in my case. How many people subconsciously believe that? How many people have been lulled into a sense of complacency and false security thinking, yes, there's a God and God is going to judge sin one of these days, but God looks at me a little differently than he does other people. I've got a little bit of a different kind of relationship with God than people out yonder who don't profess religion. Surely God takes into account who I am and the background I come from. You know, contemporary society has made a mockery of the rule of law and justice. Our system today is really broken in many respects, and I know that that's the case because you can basically get out on a busy street corner at high noon and commit first-degree murder, and if you've got enough money and you can hire an influential enough attorney and a smart enough attorney, he can usually work that around if you get just the right jury that you can get off the hook. If you don't get completely acquitted, then you can at least get a reduced sentence. You can get off on some lesser charge. That's just the way our system works. There are loopholes in the law today, and people know how to seize on those loopholes, and they know how to get people in trouble, out of trouble rather, regardless of the trouble they really should be in. And because we live in a society that does have loopholes and safeguards, and we really live in a society that doesn't accept responsibility for its actions anymore, we've really lulled ourselves into believing in religion that, that's, that it's that way with God. There are loopholes in the law of God. God looks at us differently. It's really not going to happen to me. I'm not going to have to stand before God and account for my life. God looks at me differently. Wrong. God makes no exceptions for anyone. In Romans 2 and verse 2, Paul said, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Now, the context is the Jews were relying on the blood of Abraham. And they were reasoning amongst themselves, Well, you know, we're Abraham's children. And since we're the seed of Abraham, we have a special connection with God, and we have a special relationship with God, and we're not like these filthy Gentiles out here who don't know God and don't have a covenant with God, when in truth, Paul is saying they were guilty of the same sins that the Gentiles were, and they stood just as condemned in the eyes of God, but they denied that because of who they were. Paul says wrong. The judgment of God is according to truth against all of those who commit sin, regardless of who they are. His conclusion in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 is, for all have sinned. He reasons in Romans chapter 1 that the Gentiles were estranged from God. In chapter 2, he talks about the Jews. His conclusion in chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And his premise is Romans 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto all them that believeth, to the Jew first and also unto the Greek. That doesn't mean that the Jews were preferred by God in this particular case. It simply means that God took the gospel to them first and then he offered it unto the Gentiles. But it was offered unto all because it was the answer for every man's sin. Man could not rely on the blood coursing through his veins. He could not rely upon who his forefather or his forefathers were. He could not rely upon what religion he had embraced up until that point. Every man stood on equal footing in the eyes of God and would and will be judged by the life that they lived. God judges sin tonight regardless of who commits it. You may have sat on a pew of a church building all of your life. Every Sunday, God will judge your sin just like he judges the man who's never darkened the door. God judges sin. 
God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of its embracing perverted lifestyles and he buried them with brimstone. There's not a doubt in my mind that this nation is rotting and decaying. Modern man is ripe for destruction and God is letting that happen because of our outright rejection of decency and morality and because we have embraced as a society, as a modern age, those very same things. In Noah's day, God opened the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep and he drowned the human race because the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Don't think for one minute that God is not aware of the filth and the vulgarity and the profanity that have absolutely saturated our society today and turned it into a moral cesspool. When God looks upon a society that sanctions the slaughter of a helpless and innocent child every 21 seconds in an abortion clinic, don't think for one minute that he does not very well and vividly remember the atrocities that the people of Israel committed while worshiping Baal in the valley of Hinnom by burning their babies as a sacrifice to the pagan god Molech and sent them into the harsh captivity of Babylon. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 and 17, the father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. Now God may not deal with nations on the same level that he did with Israel and with nations in that old age, but I can tell you God judges sin today just like he always had. And there is coming a judgment day when every man and every woman is going to stand before God and they're going to have their lives open before God like a book and they're going to answer for their deeds. And you will be there, and I will be there. And God will not judge based upon who you are. He will judge upon what you were and the life you lived. You will not escape the judgment of your sins because your father, your mother, your grandfather, your grandmother, your husband, your wife, or your children lived a righteous life. You will ride into, the heaven, into heaven on the coattails of no one. You will only be saved if you have obtained the forgiveness of your sins on God's terms. And there are no exceptions to that rule, not one. Number four, Satan wants you to believe I cannot be happy if I live a Christian life. And the world really has a strange definition of happiness to me. I really don't get it, I have to admit to you. Maybe someone could explain it, but I have yet to see anyone that's given me a satisfactory explanation of how the things that the world thinks makes them happy will make them happy. The world says that to be happy, you have to get drunk every Friday night, be married at least three, three times, and that to be happy, you have to play golf or go fishing on Sunday. To be happy, you have to have a college degree and make $100,000 a year. That to be happy, you have to have everything you ever wanted. To be happy, you have to live on the right side of town. To be happy, you have to drive the right kind of car, and you have to achieve just the right socioeconomic status. Why, after all, God and the church and family and so on and so forth, peace of mind, what's that all about? You only go around one time. Grab the world of the tail. Make the most of it. It's all about you, and you deserve to be happy. And then he says, look at those pitiful people over there. Look at those people who have to go to church. Look at those people over there that live their life all bound up by an outdated set of Victorian morals and rules and regulations of that Bible. Look at those people over there that can't go out and do all the things that we do and kick up their heels and sin and have a fun time and drink and curse and gamble and do everything else. Look at that. You know, some people's idea of happiness, as I said, is strange to me. Getting high on drugs until you have fried your brain like an egg does not sound like happiness to me. But millions of people have been duped into believing that it is because they'll do anything to get their hands on the stuff. 
getting into a drunken stupor and making a fool out of yourself and waking up the next morning feeling like someone has your head put in a vice, I don't get where that's happiness. I don't get where that's a good time. I understand how people fall into the trap of temptation, and I understand how people get addicted to the stuff. I understand that good and well, but I have never understood how people think that's fun. But people do. Because tomorrow night, by the millions, young and old will go out and they'll hit the bars, and they'll have their keg parties, and they'll have their drug parties, and that's fun to them. That's what it's all about to them. They spend their life, they live out their week to get to Friday so they can do all of that. Catching some disease or raising a child on welfare because of my irresponsibility and my lust and my selfish desire for pleasure, that doesn't sound like happiness to me. That doesn't sound like a well-rounded life. That doesn't sound like a successful life because it's not. But let me tell you what happiness is. Happiness is going to church on the Lord's day. David said in Psalm 122 and 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And if you feel like going to church is a labor, if you feel like going to, the ch going to church is a drudgery, you need to get converted because the fact of the matter is the person that loves the Lord has no greater joy in his life than to come together with the people of God and sing to God and read his word and study his word and pray together with those of like precious faith. That is a joy in the life of any Christian. Happiness is keeping the commandments of God. Proverbs 29 and verse 18, he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Happiness is trusting in God through life's uneven and uncertain circumstances. As David said in Psalm 146 and 5, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, and keepeth truth forever. In other words, happiness is facing whatever life throws your way, knowing that you've got a God like that on your side. Happiness is living a life for others. Proverbs 14 and 21, he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. The world is all about me. The world is all about me, myself, and I. What makes me happy? What I can get, what I can achieve. But the life of the Christian is self-abasing and devoted to others. You say, where's the happiness in that? Do you know psychologists have proven that people who live an altruistic life People who live a life, a selfless life, giving of themselves, giving of their time, giving of their money unto those who are in need are happier and more contented and at peace with themselves people. It's true. And that's what the Christian life is all about. Happiness for the believer. Here's the ultimate definition. Happiness for the believer is drawing our last breath on this earth. And one minute later, having God open the curtain of immortality into paradise. And ultimately, eventually spending an eternity in a city that is filled with holy, happy, singing, laughing people in robes of pure white. Happiness is going to a land where tears never fall because God wipes them away. Happiness is going to a place where there is no pain, no sickness, no disease, no dying, no disappointments or heartaches. Where you have neighbors like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter and James and John. Or... You can stumble around in life and throw your life away and live for yourself and live for sin and have your supposed good time for a little while. And then you could be cast into a lake of fire and an abyss of darkness 
where the souls of the unrighteous weep unceasingly and grind their teeth together in pain and endless frustration. You can go to a lake of eternal fire where you will never be consumed, just endlessly suffer. You can go to a place where you'll have neighbors like Hitler and Haman and Charles Matson. You can go to a place where you perhaps will never see your children or your mother or your father again. That's called hell and I don't call that happy. But Satan would have you to believe you can't be happy if you live a Christian life. Number five, Satan would have you to believe my sin is my business and I'm not hurting anyone but me. My sin is my responsibility. And what is it to you if I live a life of sin? Well, in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 9, Moses said, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto graven images, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now I think if there's a modern application to that passage, if there's a moral principle there within that passage that extends right on down to you and me, it is that sin has consequences that outlast us. Sin has consequences that far cross the generational divide. And some people doom their families to failure and destruction and despair and unhappiness and a life of drudgery and slavery to sin because of the choices they make. That's how influential you are. And you may not realize that. But you hold the destiny of lives in your hand. Here in the last few years, I've experienced the joy that most of you sitting out here tonight have experienced some of you many years ago. And that's to bring a brand new life into this world. And both times, I don't think I've ever sensed a more overwhelming feeling or responsibility than to hold a child newborn in my arms and look down and say, they are my responsibility. And the life I live, the words I say, the choices I make, the priorities that I have, is in large part, and perhaps solely, going to determine whether they spend eternity because they will live forever just like I will, whether they spend eternity in heaven or in hell. My sin is my business. It's nobody's business but mine, the sinner says. The devil would have them to believe. How foolish that is. Uh, uh, We remember the sin of Achan, of taking the spoils of Jericho, and how in so doing he harmed his nation and his family, according to Joshua, the seventh chapter. Israel lost in their battle against Ai because of His, Achan's, sin. His family died in retribution for Achan's sin. I repeat, your sin will destroy the people you claim to love. When a man breaks the law and goes to prison, his family goes to prison with him, in a manner of speaking. When the young person throws his life away in alcohol and drugs and promiscuity and sinful living, he takes his parents into a period of torment within their life. And they don't realize the pain that their mother or their father experiences during those long and sleepless nights, wondering where they're at, who they're with, what they're doing. I've seen young men and young ladies who follow their unbelieving father or mother straight down the road to hell because they look up to them and they want to be what they are. King David's sins destroyed his son Absalom. When he was a boy, Absalom watched his father seduce another man's wife. He watched his father lie. He watched his father manipulate and conspire. He finally saw his father become a murderer as he killed Uriah. And so Absalom, no surprise, grew up to be just as disloyal as his father taught him to be. He killed David's other son, his brother Amnon. He later tried to steal the kingdom. He did what his daddy did. He cheated, he lied, he manipulated, and finally he tried to kill his own father because David taught him how to do it. And David 
The chickens came home to roost for David. The sword never departed from his house. He said, my sin is ever before me. And never in his life was that any more true than after that tragic battle in the woods when Absalom was killed and they bore the news back to David and he locked himself in his chamber and he cried and he wailed, oh Absalom, oh Absalom, would I have died for thee, oh Absalom. His sins destroyed his family. Several years ago, there was a father who came home to his three children and had to tell them that he had gotten a note that day or found a note that day from their mother saying that she was leaving and never coming back. She disappeared. The two older children were able over the course of time to somewhat adjust. But the little 10-year-old boy simply could not. One night his father came home from work and the little boy asked him, said, Father, can we please go out tonight and look for mom? And let's go get her and let's bring her home. The father tenderly explained, son, we've been through this before. And believe me, if I knew where your mother was, we would go find her. But I don't know where she's at. The boy began to cry and he said, daddy, please, let's just go find mother and bring her home. I want things to be like they used to be. The father, growing impatient and frustrated, said, son, I'm telling you, I don't know where she is. Now let's just drop it. I don't want to hear more about it. The son began to sob and he said, Daddy, please, let's just go find mom and bring her home and I want her to cook supper like she always did. And the father shouted, I don't know where your mother is. Now just hush about it. Let's go to McDonald's and get something to eat. And the boy said, I don't want to go to McDonald's. I want my mother. But they went to McDonald's and they ate. And that little 10-year-old boy sunk into a deep depression in his life that never broke. And some years later, 12 years in fact, still living under the auspices of that sorry mother, he went into a McDonald's down the road here in Los Angeles and he shot 22 people because of the rage that was inside of him. Don't tell me it's my life. It's not your life. It's the life of your wife. It's the life of your husband. It's the life of your children. It's the life of your mother. It's the life of your father. And their life counts just as much as yours does. Number six, Satan wants you to believe there is no judgment day. And it doesn't matter whether you believe there is or not. There is. It matters not if you choose to believe that there is no hell. You can still go there. The earth is round whether you choose to believe it or not. And sin is real and hell is real and sin will send you there whether you believe it or not. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 11, the last days there would be scoffers walking after their own lusts, and they would say, where is the promise of his coming? Because since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they always were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, if there really was going to be a second coming, if the Lord really was going to return, he'd have been here by now. What do you mean all this business about a judgment day? And Peter says, you know this, that life continues upon this earth. The world continues as it is, second by second and minute by minute and hour by hour because of one thing, and that is the patience of God. But one day, like the sands in an hourglass, they're going to run completely out. His patience is going to be over. And Peter says that like a thief in the night, suddenly, Christ is going to return. This earth is going to be destroyed. And the world is going to be summoned together. 
before the throne of Jesus Christ in judgment. As certain is the fact you're sitting where you are, the day of judgment is an appointed day, Acts 17 and 30. Every one of us will be there and we will give an account of ourselves to God, Romans 14 and 12. Every knee shall bow in that day and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Romans 14 and verse 11. One day I'm going to stand before the throne of Christ and I'm going to be made to account for every thought I had and every word I said and everything I've done in life that has not been washed away by the blood of Christ. And you too will answer for the gap that lies between where you are and where you should have been. You're not going to die and then atomize and be no more. You're going to live forever and forever and forever and forever and forever somewhere, either in the presence of God or in the abyss of hell, and that choice is yours. But don't believe for one second there is no judgment day. And lastly tonight, Satan wants you to believe, I have plenty of time. And perhaps this is Satan's most deceptive tactic. I have plenty of time. That allows you to have all of the good intentions in the world. You don't have to antagonize the church. You don't have to deny the truth of God's word. You don't have to go around and argue against the Bible and tell people there is no God and the Bible isn't true. You don't have to do any of that. In fact, really being lost is the easiest proposition in the world because it takes no effort. Being lost requires one thing, and that is waiting one heartbeat too long to meet God on his terms. Now life is fragile and you can boil your life right down to hours. We, we think of life in terms of years. You can just boil your life right down to hours and minutes and seconds. And at some point out there in the future, that clock is going to move for the last time where you're concerned. And you may know that minute is approaching and you may not, but that day is coming. And Solomon tells us in Proverbs 27 and 1, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You may not be alive at the next rising of the sun. You do not know that tonight. And I don't say that to frighten you tonight. I don't say that just simply to repeat preacher rhetoric tonight. I say that tonight because it is true. You do not know about tomorrow. You don't know about an hour from now. Your line of work may have brought you into contact with carnage and death. Mine has from time to time. As a preacher of the gospel, I have stood at the bedside of dying saints, some of them there after a long-term illness, some of them there after a sudden heart attack. For four years, I worked in broadcast journalism until here just recently. And in a fairly smaller market where it's kind of all hands on deck, and one of my jobs in the evening, after most of the reporters and photographers had gone home, was when we would hear those codes come over the scanner that there had been a horrible accident or shooting or stabbing. I had to get a camera and go out there and cover it. And I suppose over four years, I did a lot of that. And in the course of that time, I saw a lot of carnage. I wasn't really kept back from it. I was able to be right up there where all of it was. And I suppose in one respect you get a little bit jaded to it, you get a little bit callous to it once you've seen it enough. But I can tell you that of all of the fatal wreck scenes that I have been to and all of the corpses I've seen laying on the pavement, all of the bodies that I've seen brought, brought out of a house on a stretcher, I have never one single time seen that that I did not 
stop and think about how fragile life is and was not reminded that that person one hour ago was just as alive as I am and one hour ago had no idea they would be dead. And there may be a funeral home in this town with an empty gurney tonight and your body could be the next to lie upon it. And you just don't know at this moment. But Satan deceives people into believing. You have time. It's fine to obey the gospel. You need to be worried about that. But not now. You have time. Enjoy life. Do what you want to do. You can get around to that when you're older. And thus he whispers into the ear of many willing hearts and causes them to stumble right into the pits of eternal destruction. The poet said, the clock of life is wound but once and no man hath the power to tell just when those hands will stop at late or early hour. Live and love and toil with will, but place no faith in tomorrow. For then the hands may be still. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.